Hi, and thanks for tuning in. You are listening to an inclusive features audio report. Brought to you by our global reporter, Kimberly Middleton. Hello, and welcome to this inclusive features audio report, where I have honest conversations about the successes and the challenges of disability inclusion projects. Today, I'm joined by Vladimir Chuk, the Executive Director of the International Disability Alliance, and Dom Haslam, the Deputy Chief Executive of International Development Organization, Sightsavers. Hi to you both, and thank you for joining me today. Hi, Kimberly. Hello, Kimberly. So, Inclusive Futures is a flagship disability inclusion programme. It's bringing together 16 organisations. It's funded by UK Aid and it is testing and delivering innovations for people with disabilities uh, in education, healthcare, livelihoods, and also tackling stigma and discrimination. But seven years ago, it was just an aspiration that you both held. Can you take me back to that time? What was your idea? What was the problem that you'd identified that you wanted to solve? So I think we were we were coming um, coming into and then coming out of the discussions around the sustainable development goals, um, and Sightsavers worked very closely with uh, with Ida on on trying to make those goals more inclusive than their predecessor, the the Millennium Development Goals, and I think had quite a lot of success with that. And I think you know one of the things when when Vladimir and I were talking about it was. Um, was about, okay, well, if we're successful in this, then resources will come out from the other side. So governments will start to prioritise, people will start to want to see um, inclusive development in action. What what do we want to do about it? And and I think from the very early days, Vlad, you know, you you and I talked about Sightsavers and I are kind of forging a, a partnership to to work together on the implementation of these these promises that then came out from the SDGs, the promises to leave no one behind. But I think there was a really clear sense, certainly in in my view, that I really wanted either to be at the heart of anything that we chose to do around that kind of program implementation, because it's something where there'd perhaps in the past been a bit of a divide between the role of organisations of persons with disabilities and the role of NGOs. And I think we kind of saw this as a real opportunity to to bring those two groups of organisations together and, and work together on finding the solutions to to the challenges of leaving no one behind. But um, what, what's your view on that, Vlad? Indeed, I, I remember very well my first meeting with Don. Uh, it was in New York uh, before 2015, so it will be... It, it must have been 2013 or 14. And from, from that moment on, we start thinking about how we can collaborate to really make CRPD implementation operationalized. And um, how can we make all stakeholders start taking CRPD implementation seriously? Because what we saw is that really there is a lot of political commitments, um, uh, a lot of nice words everywhere, a nice pictures taken, but not really uh, real work. And that is where we found need to join forces between IDA and Sightsavers. And then there was indeed SDGs that gave us a framework for this collaboration. And we recognized that we need to do something. And then we were lucky to have a leadership from from DFID side back then, UK DFID, that was very committed to promote disability inclusive development. So uh, I think that everything somehow came together and resulted in the in this program. And Vlad, you touched there on the CRPD. Could you give me a brief overview, if that's possible, about what the CRPD is and its role in terms of international development? 
Yeah, very simple. I mean, CRPD is the last human rights treaty. It is the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, which defines the roadmap for governments how to implement the rights of persons with disabilities. It involves all rights and all people with disabilities. Uh, and linked between CRPD and SDG or simply international development is simple. We can use CRPD to describe how we can implement certain sustainable development goals. So we should be using uh, CRPD and maybe general comments because general comments of the, of the CRPD committee further go into the details on, on how we should implement certain articles of CRPD. So I would say CRPD article plus general comment always in combination, in tandem, would provide beginning of information or let's say enough information if somebody is willing uh, to implement, yes. Dom, do you have something to say? <laughs> I, I always agree with everything you say on the CRPD. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, just building on that, I think I think that has been one of the really interesting parts of this this program. So you have the MDGs and the SDGs for NGOs, and you have the human rights treaties for human rights bodies and for for representative organisations like like OPDs. For me, bringing those two things together created a real kind of dynamic. Um, for the conversations that, that we had. And it's a difficult thing to do to implement human rights-based approaches to development. Organizations have been talking about it for a long time. It's challenging as well, though, because we use different language as a starting point. Vladimir will talk about articles, and I'll talk about outcomes and objectives. And, and so even there, you have a really straightforward kind of language um, exchange, and we need to understand that and unpack that. What does that mean, and how do we go about doing that? It's, it, that's been a fascinating part of the process for me. Indeed, I think what is unique about this program is that we came together different organizations and to slowly move away from business as usual. And through trying to define what does it mean, inclusive programming, what does it mean, including CRPD into development? What does it mean in combining uh, DPOs and the development stakeholders? What does it mean? By, by doing all of that, that became the, the goal in itself. And this is the first time that this is happening, or at least first time that it's happening at such a scale in, and in such an organized, structured way, in, in a structured way that will provide with the learning from it. And that is the best part out of it. Can I go back to the divide which you said you'd identified between organisations of people with disabilities and NGOs and the work that they're doing? How is this programme working differently with people with disabilities? I think an interesting starting point for me is two words that I don't think I've ever repeated two words as much in any one programme in the 25 years I've been working in development, and that's uh, meaningful and participation. And I think those two words are really at the heart of it. So if you'd asked me seven years ago um, what we needed to do for Sightsavers in a disability-focused program in order to, to make sure that we were taking people's views into account, I would say, okay, let's, let's make sure that we go through kind of normal community participation processes at the beginning of the program. And then maybe halfway through, maybe we'll go back and check in and see if things are working the way they should. And then maybe at the end of the program. I'm not saying that's all we would do, but that would be seen as being a reasonable framework. Um, the conversations that have, have happened over the last two, three years around meaningful participation in this program have taken us into an entirely different place. Issues around governance, issues around 
payment of people with disabilities for the time that they provide to a, to a program and a project. So not assuming that people should give it free because they'll benefit from it, but actually saying this is your expertise, there's a value to that expertise. It's really kind of embedding it all the way through. And that involves a constant conversation and constantly checking in and people getting irritated and annoyed with each other at points about not feeling that they've been you know, included sufficiently or people feeling, well, do you really need to be included in that? And if you're included in that, it's going to slow us down and we've got to get out there and do some things because that's what development NGOs do. We do stuff. So that one kind of strand, if you like, it's only an indication of the complexity of it, but I think it's a really important strand. And that's been something that we'll, we'll continue to come back to. We haven't got the answer right yet, but I think we are definitely learning. Yes, I would say that this was indeed, this was uh, one of the biggest changes in the, that this program provided and the biggest successes that indeed DPOs were recognized as a meaningful partner in different activities and they were paid for. So there are, there are budget allocations. This is what we insisted, all of us, Sightsavers and AIDA, as a governance structure. So when you look, like Dom said, it started from the governance of the program, there is AIDA and Sightsavers. Then you look at the implementation, you have recognized role of DPOs and also there is a line, reporting line on reasonable accommodation. Just if we achieve that little thing in this grant, it is, it is something, it is a big success. If, you, if someone asked you, why should I care about Inclusive Futures? What makes it different? Why is your program more special or unique than, than another program? What, what is it? What's at the crux of it that, that you think people should really care about? So, um, so for me, I think there are, there are two things about it. I think um, possibly three. So the first one is what we've just been talking about, which is about having IDA involved at the governance level and having meaningful participation of DPOs or OPDs throughout the programme. I think that's, that's really different to what a lot of other similar initiatives are doing. Um, and I think that's really critical. And the fact that it was right from the very conceptual stage before the money even existed, we talked about this program before there was any money. Um, and, and that's really unusual. The second thing for me is the consortium, the nature of the consortium. So we've talked a lot about IDA and Sightsavers, but there are tw nearly 20 organizations involved as consortium members across the program. Um, and it's such a wide range of consortium members as well. You have academic institutions, you have NGOs, which are both mainstream NGOs and disability focused NGOs. Um, you have DPOs, as we've been talking about, but within that range of, of, of NGOs, you have specialists on communication, specialists on the hotel sector, um, specialists in, in general development activity. And, and that's really crucial because if we can get those organizations to do things differently, we're already achieving scale up within the program because some of those organizations are, are, are enormous. You know, BRAC is bigger than Sightsavers. So if we can get BRAC to do things differently across its program and to be more inclusive across its program, that's a significant shift in all of, um, all of the development work that BRAC does. And I think that's really critical. And that's maybe a, a bit the third one for me, which is the scale of it. Um, I know there's been some Norwegian government funding announced recently, which is which is great. But until then, this was probably, if not the certainly one of the biggest disability focused development programs in the world in history. Um, and, and it's only 30 million pounds or, you know, 40 million pounds if you add the two programs together. That's not an awful lot of money once you start splitting it up amongst six, seven countries, 20 organizations and so on. But But even that kind of gives you a sense of, 
there's more resources that are needed for this area of work. And once we have the learning that we're generating in this, I think there's an awful lot that we, awful lot more that we can do. This program should be running for 10 years. I agree with this. Uh, yeah, it is. It is the first. It was unique. It is unique when we started indeed uh, through this collective agreement between different organizations that that maybe never worked with people with disabilities. Uh, we had to make this collective agreement and they they did not have to accept all of that you know it was a general agreement that we need to do now disability inclusive programming and we have to define what it means uh, and it was not easy first couple of months first year i think it was a little bit challenging because it was um, it it was a bumpy road let's say but now we established certain procedures we put uh, certain systems in place and the people are now know what they need to, to do. At the end of the day, a commitment that we took was collective, but responsibility uh, lies with indiv individual members, how they will implement. And I think that there will be a lot of learning out of this. You were, you were a lot more diplomatic, as always, Vlad, than, than <laughs> I would have been uh, about that first year. And, and I think that's, re that's really important that we recognize that uh, uh, as well. You know, if nobody was doing anything different after this program than what they were doing at the beginning, then we've, we've failed. We've all failed. Yes. But I'm really hopeful because I think people have seen the benefits of working in this way. What is important also that we, uh, we are building uh, capacities of organizations on both sides, on DPO side, especially, I mean, IDA definitely, but also at the national level in Africa and elsewhere, we are seeing that there are DPOs at the national level that are being recognized as as national lead these are capacities that are now created for good you cannot take this back and these are capacities also that are ready to work with with any of the partners that are in a consortium on any other possible funding or program also i believe that through this joint commitment from all members of consortium we build also internal capacities that cannot be changed back and so i think that there is a lot of change that will be there. With a programme this innovative and complex, you, inevitably you're going to have some challenges. What, what would you say the main ones have been? Um, maybe I'll kick off with one. So let's take the COVID pandemic. Um, what the outbreak of the pandemic did was to force an entire rethink over all of our plans, all of our activities, all of the, the partnerships and what we were trying to do during the year. And of course, that came alongside a reduction in, in budget allocation for the year in, in both programmes. Um, but for me, what was what was brilliant, going back to uh, what Vladimir said earlier about the, the kind of difficulties and the difficult conversations that we needed to have in the first months and, and year or so of, of the programme was the the ability of the consortium to respond to that as a whole was, it was phenomenal. I, I honestly can't think of it having gone any better. And what I mean by that is both that the relationships and the way that organizations approached the problem and also what came out from the other side. So we have some great example of, uh, examples of, of responses that we've had as a consortium to the COVID pandemic, but also we were able to have those conversations in a way which was constructive, um, which was, yeah, I think respectful, I think, is probably the, 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 the right way of putting it. But that was only possible because of the foundations that we built by having those tough conversations and the difficult bits at the beginning of the consortium. So, um, yeah, I mean, m my view is if you can, if as a consortium you can survive budget cuts 
and a global pandemic and come out the other side in good shape, there's nothing you can't do, to be honest. So I, I was really, really heartened by that. Just to add on a COVID, how big challenge that was, I felt that disability rights uh, were going up and up from strength to strength over the last you know, five years, let's say six years, seven years, really like it was spectacular to see. Every year brought uh, significant new developments and we were like celebrating and it was, it, it was really going well. Then you, then you saw in the first two weeks of pandemic that, that disability uh, discrimination is so much alive and well and like kicking that you know, people with disabilities were denied access to hospital. They were denied treatment because their lives were, were deemed less, less valuable. And so they were left to, left to, left to die. There was absolutely, absolutely everything was forgotten and everything that, that we achieved, we as a world achieved over, uh, over the last seven years. What does it, what does it tell us? Is that, that, that successes that were made over seven, seven years are very uh, fragile. They are very fragile. And so, even if we are celebrating this project and this program, Inclusive Futures, that is 40 some million pounds, it's very small. We need much, much more to be done in this regard so that, that, that the change is real. Now, uh, that, that was really very harsh wake-up call and very harsh reminder that we have a long way to go. Uh, challenges beyond COVID, I would say that uh, what we notice is that that by some partners that uh, CRPD has been seen as something very dogmatic. There was not really true understanding. People simply wanted, like Dom said, they wanted checklists, not to talk about human rights and conventions, but to talk about uh, concretely implementation. This is my daughter. L L Luna's agreeing with you, Vlad. <laughs> yes, about challenges. <laughs> she's good she's good on that and also uh, what was what was interesting that we also start thinking about power dynamics between opds or dpos and the mainstream ngos and they, and i think this is something that is interesting and good conversation to have and that is one challenge that we have for a long long time and i think that we need to recognize it and to have it always there in the room and uh, and dedicate certain time to that conversation and what about successes of the programme so far? What are you particularly proud of? Uh, I could jump in with one, Vlad. I mean, we've talked a lot about kind of relationships and processes and, and structures and so on. And those are really important because they're about the systemic changes that we want to see. I mean, as, as Vlad's talked about, there's a real, there's a really key word here of systematic. There's a big difference between doing it every so often and doing it right all the time. But I want to focus on something which is, which is programmatic because... I work for an NGO. That's what that, that that's what floats my boat. Um, but I think some of the innovative work that we're we're doing, bringing new organisations into thinking about inclusive ways of working and so on, are, are are really brilliant. And just one example of that, looking at inclusive value chains, we're doing that through this partnership with the East Africa Breweries Limited, um, part of the Diageo Group. We're supporting farmers with disabilities to engage in formally contracted sorghum farming. Um, in October this year, um, farmers completed their first sorghum harvest, which has now been formally weighed, acquired by East Africa Breweries Limited at a high profile event in early October. So not just doing it, but showing it and being proud of, uh, of that. And I think that kind of thing is, is phenomenal because, again, it takes us away from this kind of traditional 
um, community-based development type approach from from informal livelihoods type approaches and so on this is talking about something which could fundamentally change the employment sector for a huge range of people in um, in, in East Africa and, and that's the kind of change that we should be looking at. There's an awful lot of other examples like that but I just think that one for me is all about that kind of innovation and pushing the boundaries and saying well what really does need to change it can't just be about one one project here and one intervention there it has to be about systemic change and, and um, that kind of innovative approach for me that kind of innovative partnership I think it's a brilliant example of the kind of work that the consortium can do. Yeah, I mean, we mentioned already successes that this project resulted in, which needs to be really repeated, is that we created a space for organizations of persons with disabilities to engage in this process. And we did that through transparent process. So basically establishing a process for inclusion of a variety of organizations. So from, from national level to local level, and they could apply, they could be selected, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And this is really irreversible this is when you when you bring these people together you will create something that is there uh, that you will create connections networks capacities that you cannot take away easily and that is important and for me also uh, the fact that that program established dpo engagement officer for each program country to further ensure connection between organizations and people with disabilities with different activities that's you know that is also capacity that that is there now so I'm very pleased with the successes that this program created in terms of creating a long, long-lasting change and the sustainable change. That is, uh, that is important that we, that we lifted that capacity, that we together created some uh, mechanisms and, and on top of that succeeded to achieve results that Dom spoke about previously. So I think that the combination of these two uh, should be a model for replication. So I said at the beginning that Vladimir was all about systemic change and I was all about outputs and outcomes and that's a brilliant <laughs> example. <laughs> there had to be a, a legacy from inclusive futures, what would you want it to be? What, what would you want the one thing to be that in 20 years time you can say that is the legacy from inclusive futures? I think the fact that we were the first mover on these levels to introduce CRPD into inclusive de development programming uh, to define inclusive programming. First time that, uh, that you know, at this scale, DPOs came together with international NGOs and were able to both change processes and deliver results. So. Yeah, I'd go along with that. Uh, I mean, I would go further than that as well and say we're no longer talking about inclusive development because the way that development is being done is inclusive in and of itself so if you like getting to that point where it's just the way that organizations have to do business if you call yourself a development ngo or if you call yourself a, a, a you know you put yourself into a national government with development planning and so on that you do things in an inclusive way because it's the right thing to do in much the same way as we hear about gender you know we don't hear so much about gender inclusive development now because it's expected i'm not saying it's always delivered by any stretch but it's expected i think we should be in the same position after that I'm also planning to be retired by then, so hopefully I'll be watching someone else do the work. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> <laughs> you won't be here either, Vlad. Great. 
Um, my final question, just wondered professionally if you had particular accomplishment that you were proud of. I honestly think bringing this group of organisations together and getting them functioning in the way that we've talked about over this has to be one of my career highlights. You know, to, to, to sit there seven years ago and say, this is something we must do. It's easy to do that. But honestly, having seen how we weathered the storm of COVID, I know it's not over yet by any stretch, but certainly the, the, the kind of initial impacts of that means that we've put together something which is robust and I, I very much hope lasting. Um, and I think that's a that's a brilliant achievement. And I'm not taking that as a personal achievement, but it's one that I have had some contribution to, certainly. <laughs> yeah, it's hard for Dom and I to speak about personal achievements because we see it as as we are part of a bigger picture of a bigger organization. We are also part of the movement. So it's I'm always feeling like very like, uncomfortable to speak about my personal achievements. And not that, not that, that I'm modest, I'm not, but I just believe that I'm part of something bigger. But if I would to select something and I would select something that the other people told me is that it was my contribution to, to GLAD network formulation and the conceptualization of the GLAD donor network to this day, um, Global Disability Summit the contribution that I made, those, those two maybe, and really uh, if, if I can select one moment in time, it was the moment that I came, entered into the room in which Global Disability Summit is about to begin in next couple of minutes. And I felt literal chills from, from that uh, room and, and really understanding that this is something big. Because that was really a moment in, in which you cannot, you have to, to like stop doubting that <laughs> your work is not, uh, is not important or anything like that. But this is a moment in which you really have to realize that something big is happening, that change is happening, and that there are so many people that are there because you, in, in some small way, contributed to it. If you'd like to hear more, why not visit www.inclusivefeatures.org?